Welcome back to The Shorter, a podcast on the Shorter Catechism, where two pastors take 20-something minutes to confess their way through the 107 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm your host, Tommy Parker. I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Spinneweber. It is good to see you again, Tommy Park. I can't quit you. I uh, got an RUF meeting last night and podcast this morning. I know. It's like double duty. You're a good man. Uh, Charlie Brown. Yeah, last night spoke at RUF. We went over the FAQs that Tommy receives. Yeah, we're doing a little series on frequently asked questions. And one question was, are these the last days? And Mr. Steven jumped on it. Well, I was kind of voluntold. So, I mean, this is my... This is me being the martyr, right? The options were, what are the three uses of the law? And are these the last days? And I was like, Tommy, I'll let you decide. And you're like, you get eschatology. That's how it went down. Well, thank you. Thank you for serving our students. No, you're welcome. I, they got a full dose of dispensational theology. Did they not? No, they did not. Well, you, you said the word and no one knew what it meant. Right. <laughs> so that that's at least mission accomplished. It's like, at least they're not dispensational now. Um, all right. Back to the shorter, shorter catechism. Yeah. Back to the good old Ten Commandments. And so you know what today is? First Commandment Day. So we're going to walk through these commandments uh, one by one. Uh, and today we are going to go through the First Commandment. But quick little review. Uh, Edmund Clowney says this. I think we need to remember the context, and we'll probably do this every week just to remember, not in the same exact way, but every week. I see your, I see your eyes, Stephen. What do you mean, my eyes? So cross-eyed. Well, every week we're going to remind you the context of the Ten Commandments. And Edmund Clowney, in his book, uh, How Jesus Transforms the Ten Commandments, says this on page twelve. Uh, he, God, starts not with systematic theology or philosophy. He starts in history and defines himself as the one who rescues his people from Egypt, fulfilling his promise to to their fathers. And so, just a great, I think a great way to kind of summarize and to remind us what the, how the Ten Commandments are set up. Speaking of my eyes, I'm just going to look at your forehead the rest of the podcast, just like Dwight, or Jim does to Dwight. Meet my eyeline, Jim. It's going to be really unsettling. It is, but we'll be, we'll be all right. So if we were to break down the Ten Commandments most basically, I think we touched on this last week, Commandments 1 through 4 deal with our duties before God, how we love and serve God, and Commandments 5 through 10 deal with how we love and serve our neighbor, and we come to the doorway, as it were, to the Ten Commandments, the First Commandment, and it's concerned with the object of true worship. And though we won't do this every week, we won't abide by this exact structure, We'll break down our time today under two headings, what is required of us in the first commandment and what is prohibited by the first commandment, taking question 46 as our first point and question 47 as our second point. And and this, we can touch on it here, this is kind of a cool thing that the catechism shows us how deep the Ten Commandments go, right, Tommy? Yeah, because the Ten Commandments show us Things that we're not supposed to do, mm-hmm. but also things we should be doing. Right. You know, I've, you know, the last two or three weeks ago, I was meeting with a fellow pastor in our presbytery, and he was like, you know, I love how the Shorter Catechism lays out the Ten Commandments because it shows me both of these realities. 
Uh, often we think about, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be doing this. But I also should be doing these things. Because um, we limit, by only focusing on the negative, we limit the Ten Commandments. And that's what the Pharisees did. They, they said, well, only the negative aspects, what I'm not supposed to do is explicitly stated. Therefore, if I don't do these things, I'm keeping the law perfectly. But Jesus showing us the spirit of the law says, you know, it's actually not just I didn't do these things positively. Have you done the righteousness that is required? So you'll hear this phrase a lot in reform circles, that which is forbidden, the opposite is required. So it's not just enough for me to not steal from my neighbor, but I need to maintain his outward estate. I I need to benefit him, even if it comes at a personal expense to myself. So just another beautiful little thing about even the structure of the Shorter Catechism and how it breaks down the Ten Commandments. So, And I would, because we're not going to ever do this, but even the larger catechism like blows that up. Even you say more. we'll never do this. Come on. Well, uh, uh, unless, unless we get like a huge sponsor, we'll throw that out there. We're taking sponsors. Uh-huh. Uh for so the, for the larger, for the larger, yeah, the shorter it and the larger. Um, so, question forty-six: What is required in the first commandment? The first commandment requireth us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify Him accordingly. So, our first point: What is required by the first commandment? It says to worship God. Um, where do we see this theme, this commandment, making its way in other places of Scripture? Yeah, I mean, the first place that comes to mind pretty directly is Deuteronomy 6, 4, you know, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know, just reminding us that that our God is one, that we should worship him alone. He's in a class of one. Yeah. Monotheism. Yeah. Most basically, Yeah, right? particularly, again, going back to, you know, when all this was put together, you know, like we think of other religions and we think of, you know, Hinduism and Islam and Judaism and all these other things. However, back in the ancient Israel day, I mean, there were, there was these multipleness of gods, you know, just the, the moon, the moon God, the sun God, everything was a God in a sense, you know? And so, and God, God, of the Bible, the God of Israel coming in saying, I am the only one. I'm the true one. I'm the one who saved you and redeemed you. I'm the one who's called you by name. Uh, I'm the one who speaks to you. you know? Yeah. And in America, I think even your rank and file unbeliever is just kind of used to a monotheistic, well, Christians only believe there's one God, sure. But this was really provocative. This was very unique in the ancient world where they believed in pantheon or pantheism, multiple gods. And Deuteronomy 6.4, it says that the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and there's this sort of implied therefore in verse 5, because it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Because God alone is the one true God, therefore, all of our worship is to be reserved for him alone. So we worship God not with a divided heart, but with all our heart, soul, strength, might. It belongs to God because he's the only proper object of our spiritual worship. And and even in the the Psalter, the Psalms, you know, often in a lot of our churches, um, they start with a call to worship. And a lot of times they'll start with 
a verse from the Psalms, you know, mm-hmm. like Psalm 86, for, for you are the great, uh, you're the great one, and you do wondrous things. You alone are God, you know, and Psalm 100 and Psalm 95, and, you know, we can go on and on, but just the, this one God who's over and over again is described as this, and I think this Ten Commandments particular here is describing this, the beauty and wonder of our God, that he's not just God, but he's creator God, sustainer God, and particularly in our context is where we said redeemer God, mm-hmm. and that's the God we worship. Yeah. I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God, Isaiah 45, 5. So this is everywhere. So the first requirement of the law is we are required to acknowledge God as the only true God, but the second requirement that's interwoven into question 46, we are required to acknowledge God as our God. Again, the beauty of what Les was talking about, there are no wasted words in the catechism. They're all pregnant with meaning. So this is a personal element that not just is God, God somewhere out there, remote, abstracted from me, but that God is my God. He is my shepherd. I'm his sheep. So James 2 talks about this bare knowledge of God. You believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And I think this is what the catechism's honing in on. It's not just enough to believe that God is. You need to believe that God is mine and I am his. This is a great example where the larger catechism kind of blows this up a little more, you know, because it lists out all these characteristics of the beauty of God and who he is and what he's about. But the last line in 104, I believe, where it it says who God is, and at the very last line it says, walk humbly with him. Hmm. So we have this this grand relationship that this God that we worship, who is transcendent, is also intimate. He is with us. He's for us. We walk with him. And then we get to walk with him because he has redeemed us. He has called us by name. And now we get to walk humbly with him, and part of that walking is worshiping him. Mm -hmm. And we know God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this, I think, impresses upon us the need for salvation, personal relationship with God. That's an off-used phrase, but just because it's off-used doesn't mean that it's wrong. Um, Christianity is not assent to a bare set of principles, but it is relying upon the one true God for our salvation. And there are three types of knowledge, three ways in which people can know God. These are um, pretty common levels, if you could call them that, among Reformed theologians. There's the notitia type of knowledge, that bare knowledge. Okay, you use the SAT words. Well, I, they're from somebody else. I mean, I didn't, you know. Go ahead. I think it was good. Uh, so, notitia, bare knowledge. This is the demon-like knowledge. You believe God is one. Fantastic. Even demons can do that. There's a sentia. And this one's a little bit harder to discern whether it's true faith or it's just sort of a um, bare assent. You, you assent, you agree with God. We like the idea of God. We might call these people very moral. We see They see the value of the law of God, but they don't know their need of Christ. And this leads us to the third kind of knowledge, the way in which we know God. We call this fiducia. This is trust. It's, it's resting upon Christ, relying upon him alone for salvation. And that's what the catechism is driving at. Not just that we know God as a fact, but that we know God personally as Savior. Walking humbly with him. My man. Look at that. It's almost like the same people that wrote the shorter catechism wrote the larger catechism. I know. Booyah. So we worship and glorify him 
accordingly, that requires, I think, quite obviously, if if everything about us is from him, through him, and to him, then we ought to live to him in that Romans 12 kind of style. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I exhort you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So if God made all of us, all of us is to be lived out in personal worship toward him in obedience. Yeah, that just reminds me of Luther's little shorter, smaller catechism, you know, where he just kind of talks about we must fear, love, and trust God more than anything else. Um, And again, you know, it's interesting those descriptors is that it's not just fear him, but it's also there's that again that humbly intimate knowledge of him of loving him and trusting him you know and, and that's all part of worship is that we need to as he has loved us we love him and we trust him that he's kind of providential care over us second point so we know what's required of us now let's look at the flip side what's forbidden in the first commandment how does the question 47 read what is forbidden in the first commandment? The first commandment forbiddeth the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God and the giving of that worship and glory to any other, which is due to him alone. So we could break this down into three basic subpoints: the what's forbidden in the first commandment, simply not worshiping God, worshiping a false God, and then we could say, um, how do we overcome this sin? I, I think it was our, our third point. Um, how, do, how do we do that? So, not worshiping God, I think this means just simply failing to worship him at all. Maybe it's not a maliciousness, but just kind of not showing up, as it were, for his worship. Well, and I would, you know, I, th- I think I would start with your the verse you just quoted, Romans 12. There's a sense of, all of life is that of worship. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a posture of worshiping him, which I think the, the first catechism is getting to. Uh, and so we need to, uh, what was the, I, that we need to live as, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, so that we are in a posture of worship. And there's daily things, you know, I need thee every hour, you know, as our family is singing that hymn right now in, in the morning, you know, just to be reminded of that. But there's a rhythm that God has given to us, which we'll probably really hone on in, in the fourth commandment, but that's alluded here as well, that mm-hmm. just being, not worshiping him on Sundays, you know, it kind of sets a pattern and a rhythm. It does. Confession of Faith, chapter 16 on good works. Um, the question was posed to me in seminary, what makes a good work good? It's something done according to God's word and unto the glory of God. So we can do the right things on paper, but if they're not done from this heart of thankful obedience and overflow of gratitude for the salvation that we have in Christ, then that is coming woefully short of what God requires. So all of life, you're right, is worship. We are to offer the whole of ourselves. And that language there in Romans 12 is that of a burnt offering. And burnt offerings, that was the one offering where the whole of the animals consumed pointing to the whole consecration of the worshiper to God. All of me belongs to you and worships you. My flesh and my heart, they cry out. So that's what God requires. And when we come up shy of that, we, we don't keep the commandment. But seldom 
is our issue that we just aren't worshiping God and we don't worship at all. Because as Calvin so aptly put it, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. We always worship something. And so the catechism says, and the giving of that worship and glory to any other. So worshiping false gods or idols is the other thing forbidden by this commandment. Uh, Augustine, you know, this disordered loves, as he puts it in the the confessions, uh, Tim Keller, as he's put, you know, and he got it from Augustine, is that when you make good things ultimate things, uh, just describing it that way. And I think, I remember you pointing this out in one of our earlier episodes, Tom Brady kind of quote that interview, like, you know, what's your your favorite ring? And his answer is the next one. You know, there's this sense of, that he has this, you know, this idolatry of That's what he lives for. Yeah, and you can, um, and even so, there's all about you know we can make good things: our career, uh, our family, our family status, uh, our certain hop. I mean, you can make anything that is good mm-hmm. an ultimate thing, and that's when we kind of enter into idolatry. Yeah, and and the worship I would say is more subtle. We don't necessarily bow down to our savings account or to little wood or stone idols. And that's the very subtle nature of sin, that we all worship something. We're probably just less overt about it than were the people in Jesus' day. Here's a great example. You brought up the office. I did. So, do you remember when Andy got a new boss? Yes. D'Angelo? D'Angelo. You know, and there he... Andy would try to make him laugh, but the only time he would laugh at Andy was when Andy would hurt himself. Like slapstick humor, yeah. yeah. Um, like he would put coffee on himself or put his hand in the toaster. But there, Andy had an idol what? Approval. Appro- yeah. You know, and in some sense, I mean, I would say that's probably, in one way or another, that's something that we, that's in our hearts that we want approval. Uh, and the approval of man is easier maybe to attain, but it's impossible to maintain Yeah, because they call they don't call it 15 minutes of fame for nothing. Um, and yeah, we do in a lot of ways make an idol of how others perceive us and what they think of us. So how do we protect against this, Tommy, with the time that we have left? How do we protect against succumbing to idolatry and making good things, ultimate things, or the best thing in our lives? Well, I think one is how the catechism is going to, and I think we'll get this to Thomas Chambers. What the Ten Commandments is showing in front of us is the beauty and wonder of God. You know, it's showing us and reminding us that He is the one and only God. He's the one who's created all things. He's the one who's sustaining all things, and He's the one who's going to come and make all things right. And because of that, our ultimate affections need to be, you know, move towards that. That's the portrait, like Les said. Like, yeah, we yeah. get to see the beauty of God. Yeah. And so, that's what we need to focus on. That's what our hearts, and as our heart is more in line with that beauty, uh, it will help us kind of live out, would, you know, keep those good things, good things, and keep Him as an ultimate thing. Mm-hmm. Our sunum bonum, our highest good. Yeah. And you, you, you drop Chalmers, so there's a couple of quotes that we pulled from his a little treatise. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Just the title alone is a mic drop. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Here's a couple of uh, choice tidbits. The ascendant power of a second affection will do 
what no exposition, however forcible, of the folly and worthlessness of the first ever could effectuate. So somebody can tell you until they're blue in the face, your idols are dumb. Your idols can't save you. The idols are killing you. But the expulsive power, the ascendant power of a different, higher, better affection can do what even the most forcible um, exhortations to give up the idols could do. We must address to the eye of his mind another object with a charm powerful enough to dispossess the first of its influences. There is something more than the mere displacement of an affection. There is the overbearing of one affection by another. Instead of just displacement, there's a replacement. Replacement with something higher. We know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of the heart than to keep our hearts to the love of God. I like Chalmers. Yeah, he's good. Well, we'll put this little sermon in the show notes to give somebody something to chew on. We need to make memes like, you know, with these Chalmers quotes, just with like fire emojis in the corner. I'll let you work on that. I don't have social media anymore. Well, I'm, a, I'm a technological Luddite. You're hipper than me. But you also I, do like all of the editing. I don't and, know what a meme is. So, but we'll continue. What kind of person are you? So to illustrate this, the expulsive power of a new affection, I can't remember if it was Chalmers or some other theologian kind of riffing on this idea, but when, do you split wood by hand ever? Like with an ax, you just go out there and get all primal with it? Uh, sometimes. My, I used to do it my, my, as a kid at my dad's place. So we always use like hydraulic log splitters, but um, when we did use an ax and you get a piece of wood that has a knot in it and it's just impossible to break up just with the sheer force of your axe. You have to put a wedge in there. And if you keep hitting the wedge with a maul deep enough, eventually the wedge will get stuck and it's almost like swallowed by the log. The only way that you get that wedge out is by hammering another wedge into it, thereby driving it out of the log. And so that's what Chalmers is trying to say to us, that there's an expulsive power of a new affection that we need to fill that void that is left by our idol, with love to Christ. And one of the ways in which we love him, as you so put it, is that we just behold the wonder and the beauty of God in his law. It's the portrait. It shows us what God looks like. We do this, and and this isn't like a magical formula. So if somebody says, okay, great, you want me to love God more. Wonderful. How do I do that, practically speaking? What counsel would you give as a pastor, Tommy? How can somebody love Christ more? Well, I would say get to know him more. And, and I think ways we can do that is one, through his word. And I think this is interesting as we continue our journey through the Shorter Catechism is that all these things are after the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's, it's telling us, telling us something. So the reading and preaching of God's word, us privately but also publicly, uh, the sacraments, uh, the Watching a baptism and being reminded, if you've been baptized, watching that baptism, being reminded of your own baptism and the the, the goodness and the grace of our of your heavenly Father, but also the Lord's Supper, tasting, seeing that the Lord is good. All these things are God's way to retune our hearts, because He knows our hearts. Uh, Jeremiah seventeen nine right our heart is the most deceitful thing again Calvin talking about us being idol maker so God has given us a lot of things 
prayer as well. And again, mm-hmm. um, all those things are there to retune our hearts, to align with it. Just like, you know, my daughter plays the violin, you know, she has to retune it uh, to keep it in, in, to make it sound beautiful. And so God has given us certain means of grace to retune our heart daily and weekly and even in some sense yearly to to remind us of his goodness his wonder his beauty um, and that will help us uh, keep him as the ultimate thing and keep the good things the good things so displace those idols replace them with christ and the way we do that is through word sacraments prayer it's the simple means of grace like tommy talked about and all of these things y'all are readily available in your local church. So we talk about this all the time, RUF, uh, parachurch ministries. They're not the church. Their goal is to get you to the church, to get you in front of these means of grace, whereby God consistently, regularly, and ordinarily blesses his people. Well, thanks for coming back, everybody. We look forward to chatting with you all next time. Till we talk next, keep it short. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit of God, three in one, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be. Oh.